Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in today. This episode is brought to you by Felix Gray. Today's guest is someone who preventatively chose to have a mastectomy after finding out she had the BRCA2 gene mutation. We've had many guests on the show with cancer of all kinds, so thought it would be interesting to discuss the cancer prevention side of things. So, welcome Erica Stallings. Hi. So happy to have you here. I know we had a little bit of back and forth in scheduling, so appreciate your flexibility. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Uh, yeah, and I'm really excited to be here. I'm really glad we were able to get something on the calendar. I am originally from a very small town called Goldsboro, North Carolina. Uh, you've probably never heard of it. We've got about forty to 50,000 people, I think. And then I went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which I attended as a Moorhead Scholar. Uh, It's a merit scholarship that's given to about 40 to 50 people each year. Then I sort of kept making my way up the East Coast. I went to Georgetown University for law school, and then I moved to New York in November 2010 to start my career in private practice uh, as a lawyer. So for about six years, I worked in large law firms with a focus on intellectual property transactions and intellectual property litigation. And a year and a half ago, I moved into an in-house role. Uh, So currently, I work as an attorney at Broadcast Music Inc., more commonly known as BMI. So BMI is an organization. We are one of four organizations that license music for public performances in the United States. So I work on pretty much anything that comes up on the legal side related to our affiliated songwriters and publishers. And I have no spare time. (laughs) But when I have spare time, I'm usually like at a theater show a music show, reading my Kindle. Uh, I recently got hooked on this mobile app game called Plague Inc. Never heard of it. So the goal of Plague Inc. is you can pick, there's six different types of like vectors. So you're a bacteria, a virus, a fungus, a bioweapon. I can't remember the other two. And the goal is to infect and then kill everybody in the world. So there's a, I know, I know, I know it sounds really morbid, but there's a lot of interesting strategy because it's like, depending on what country you start in, you have to like, upgrade the bacteria to either survive in cold climates, hot climates, and you have to like infect everybody before people catch on because at a certain point in the game, the world will catch on and start developing a cure. So then you're in this tension of like trying to infect people, kill people before they develop a cure. So it's, I know it sounds really morbid, it's really fascinating. And there's like a lot of social political aspects to it. Like if you start in like a poor country, you're able to slide under the radar a lot quicker than you are when you start in like the U.S. or Canada or whatever. So this yeah. is fascinating. Is. I'm, I'm thinking when you said like I'm playing a game, I'm like, OK, cool. Like, don't really you know, this is not really my thing, but it is related to health, which is so funny. And so what brought you to New York? Like what made you end up here? Yeah. So, you know, some of it, I think when you grow up in a small town, people just always have that idea of like New York is like the dream big city. I think for me, my senior year of college, I managed a performing arts series at UNC. And since I knew I was going to law school, I was like, oh, like maybe I will get into entertainment law or intellectual property law. 
And so when I went to Georgetown, pretty much the cities that have entertainment law are like New York, LA, Atlanta a little bit, and then Miami. And so I interviewed at some firms in LA. Funny enough, I had a job interview in LA. I flew out to LA. The day before the interview, um, Lehman Brothers collapsed. So I was like in the middle of interviewing for law firm jobs and then like Lehman Brothers collapsed. So like did not get an offer. Did not get any offers for any interviews after Lehman Brothers collapsed. Yeah, bad timing. Bad timing. But I got an offer from a firm called Proskauer Rose, which is a pretty well-known firm in the entertainment and sports space here in New York. So that's what brought me to New York. Awesome. And so favorite show, whether Broadway or musical, that you've seen recently? It's really funny you say that because I've been on a string of seeing like a lot of shows that are really hyped up and are not very good. <laughs> like, <laughs> I saw, like I saw Fairview with a friend and I just didn't like it. I didn't like that one. I saw like This Flat Earth at Playwrights Horizons. Didn't love that one. Uh, but you know what I saw? And I think it's a testament to like good writing. I saw Angels in America last summer. I heard it and Angels amazing. in America is just Brilliant. incredible. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we got to get you seeing some new things that's actually good here. I'm going to see A Strange Loop in two weeks, which has gotten really good reviews. Okay. It's also at Playwrights. Fingers so fingers crossed, crossed for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So let's dive right into the health stuff. We're here because you learned that you inherited the BRCA2 gene mutation. And this is all because you decided to have some genetic testing. So go back. Tell me a little bit. What made you decide to do this genetic testing Where did that come from and why did you decide to do it when you did? Yes. So to go all the way back to the beginning, we have to go back to Goldsboro, North Carolina. So my mom has had breast cancer twice. She had breast cancer the first time in 1993. Uh, She was 28 years old at the time. She was doing a self-exam in the shower, found a lump uh, and was eventually diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. So she had a lumpectomy, uh, chemo and radiation. And in 93, they didn't know that there were these gene mutations that elevated your risk of breast and ovarian cancer. So after, you know, her cancer was gone, 14, 15 years go by, she's been in remission. And then she had a second cancer uh, my senior year of college. And because I was because I was in school at University of North Carolina, which has a really great cancer center, um, Lineberger Cancer Center, my mom decided to do her treatment there. And that's when, when they were looking at her file, they were like, wait a minute, you've had cancer when you were 28, and you had cancer in your mid-40s, and you have triple negative breast cancer this time. And triple negative breast cancer is a more aggressive type of breast cancer. And so they were like, you need to be tested for this thing called the BRCA gene mutation. So my mom got tested, and that's when she found out she had it. So this was in 2007. So... Parents can pass on their children. It can be passed from like a father to a child or a mother to a child. And so there's a 50-50 chance of passing it on to your kids. So I knew then that I had a 50-50 chance of having the same mutation. But I was graduating. I was moving to D.C. to start law school. And I was like, well, law school is already going to be pretty complicated. I probably shouldn't complicate it anymore. And then when I graduated, because it was still the recession, I had an offer from Proskauer but they deferred my start date for a year. So they paid me like $60,000 to go work somewhere else, um, work at a nonprofit. And I didn't have health insurance that year. So I finally start working in 2012 with really good health insurance. But I think some of it was like, I wasn't in a relationship at the time and it felt like I wanted to try to be in a relationship before I 
did this genetic counseling and testing. And then I was also working a lot at the firm to sort of try to establish myself. So I'm like, I don't want to like get this results, maybe have to have surgeries or a bunch of doctor's appointments when I just need to establish myself as an attorney. I'm going to stop you for a second because I'm curious what you mean by saying you want to get into a relationship before you go and pursue this. Yeah. So I think for me, because I had seen my mom go through cancer twice and the second time my mom had cancer was really difficult for her, rightfully so, because I think she thought that was something that was behind her because it had been so long. And to have her cancer come back a second time was really traumatic for her. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, if it turns out that I have this BRCA mutation, I'm probably going to have a preventative mastectomy. I mean, I will do what the doctors tell me is the best option. But in my mind, I was like, yeah, if this is the case, I'll probably have preventative surgery. So for me, well, there's another factor that's sort of interesting. So my law school boyfriend, uh, the person I dated in law school for a few months, is Ashkenazi Jewish. And so BRC mutations are actually more common in that population. And his mom had died of breast cancer when he was very young, like when he was three. And it's it was something that was like very traumatic for him most of his is and was most of his life. And so part of it was like, okay, well, I like want to be in a relationship and sort of like be established before I make these decisions that might like impact whether I have kids and, you know, sexuality and body image and all these things. Like I, it felt important to try to have that stability. Although, spoiler alert, that's not a guarantee of anything. So. <laughs> um, and also, like, dating in New York is really hard. And I was like, why would I make dating in New York harder by being like, you know, I have this really high risk of cancer and I don't have real breasts. Like, you know, is this what you want to sign up for? But I started dating someone, like, seriously in, like, October 2013. And his mom had also died of cancer. His mom had died of colon cancer. She What's had, like, this common thread? I know. I'm not into it I know. at all. And it was, like, very sudden. Like, his mom found out she had colon cancer. It was stage four. And she died, like, a few months later. So I was like, okay, I definitely have to figure out what's going on with my cancer risk. So I called Sloan Kettering in December 2013 to make an appointment for genetic testing. Memorial Sloan Kettering, because there is a shortage of genetic counselors in the United States generally, they prioritize patients who have had cancer first for appointments. And I was not. I had not had cancer. I just potentially had a high risk of having cancer. So they were like, you can come in April of 2014. And I was like, okay, well. That's fine. It's like four months away. I'll wait. And then April 2014 gets here and I had left my job to switch to a different firm. So there was like a 20 day, 30 day gap. I didn't have health insurance. And I called Memorial Sloan Kettering and I was like, hey, can I just push this appointment back by like two weeks so I have health insurance? And they were like, no, they're like, if you don't come, we don't have any available appointments until October of 2014. And I was like, "Okay, like this is way too long to wait because I've already like been stressing out a lot about doing this in the first place. And I was really lucky. I had an older friend who was on a nonprofit board with this Dr. Julia Smith. So Julia runs the high-risk program at NYU Langone Cancer Center. So I had lunch with her, and she's like, what's going on with you? And I was like, oh, well, what's going on with me is I'm really stressed out because I wanted to have this genetic counseling and testing, and it keeps getting delayed. And she was like, oh, well, here's Julia's email, and Julia, like, we'll see you whenever you're ready to be seen. Um, you know, you won't have these really long waits and like she'll just take care of it. So I made an appointment with Julia at NYU in June of 2014. So, yeah, it was definitely a journey because the paperwork to go get tested was like my mom had actually gotten this for me before I moved to New York. 
And so it was like in my stuff when I moved up here. And it just like sat in a drawer for a while. Cause I was like, I'm not really ready to deal with this now. I think the other thing was my age. So in 2013, I was 28, which was the age of my mom first got diagnosed. And I was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have this hanging over my head. You know, I got to figure out what's going on with this and make some decisions. So was it you making this decision on your own? Was your mom pushing for it? Were other family members saying, like, you know, this has happened to your mom twice. You should do something about it. Like, how did you decide to be empowered to do that on your own? My mom has never, like, pressured me directly. I do remember when the Angelina Jolie op-ed came out, which was, like, sometime, I think, in the spring of 2013. Like, she sent it to me, and she was like, what do you think about this? And I was like, oh, I thought this was, like, really well done, da-da-da-da. She would sometimes be like, what do you think you're going to do about that? And I would be like, I don't know. I have to, like, figure out a good time to do it. Um, I think a lot of it was just feeling stable for the first time in a long time. You know, like my family grew up without a lot of money and then I moved to New York and I was making like a ton of money and I had a cushion of like savings. I had paid off some debt. I felt like I was pretty well respected at the firm. I was in a relationship with someone that I thought we were heading towards marriage and I was like, okay, now is the time to like find out this information because I have a stable operating floor that I'm working from. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Felix Gray. Most of us spend a lot of time looking at our cell phone, laptop, and tablet screens. It's a big part of how we live and work. For many people, this can lead to headaches, dry eyes, and blurry vision. That's why some people, me included, turn to Felix Gray. Felix Gray makes blue light filtering glasses that are both fashionable and high quality. Their glasses filter out 90% of high-energy blue light and 99% of the glare coming from your screens. When I wear my Felix Grey glasses, I have the Roebling and the Nash, I definitely notice a huge difference in how my eyes feel at the end of the day. As a podcast host and business owner, I'm in some ways tied to my devices, so I feel good knowing that I'm taking care of my eyes when I have a long day of work. They're available in non-prescription, prescription, and reader varieties, as well as adult and kid sizes. I seriously love wearing my Felix Greys and couldn't recommend them more highly. To try a pair for yourself, go to felixgrayglasses.com slash made visible. That's felixgrayglasses.com slash made visible. You get 10% off when you buy two pairs and 15% off when you buy three or more pairs. And now back to the show. Okay, so in June 2014, you're at NYU and you learned that you inherited the BRCA2 gene mutation. Yeah, well, just to clarify, so what happens in a genetic counseling appointment is that they take your family history and they take your family tree. And then the other thing that was really crucial was, so when you're doing genetic testing, if you have a family member who they know also has a mutation, they're only going to look for that particular mutation. So they don't actually have to test the whole gene. They're only looking for that. So they you know, got a bunch of data about my family history. Uh, they got a copy of my mom's test results. And then the actual process, they take a blood draw. So they send it off to Myriad Genetics, which is the laboratory that did my testing. So I got the results in July, like three weeks later. So that's when I found out in July 2014 that I had inherited my mom's uh, BRCA mutation. And so what was it like hearing that? Because obviously there's lots of anticipation to deciding that you're going to explore and see if this is something. And as you said to me prior, you were not diagnosed with cancer. So what was it like hearing this? So 
the only way I can describe it is that it was one of those things, like instinctually, I was like, I'm pretty sure that I have this. But even to hear it out loud was still like a sucker punch. And I think what was like, you know, the other thing that was sort of compounding was that, you know, Julia is, and I'm on a first name base with her. I love Julia. She's like so great. And the reason I sought her out as a doctor is because she works a lot with women in their 20s and 30s. So she is cognizant of sort of the life things that are going on that may impact your choices. But I remember when I met with her for the counseling, she was like, you know, if you have this mutation, we got lots of options. You can do surveillance. You can take um, tamoxifen, which is a drug that's been shown to like reduce risk in BRCA carriers. And when she came back with the results, she was very somber. And she was like, yeah, I know when I we met three weeks ago, I told you there are all these options. But in reality, like looking at your test results and then thinking about your mom's history, if I were you, like I am recommending as your doctor, you should have a preventative mastectomy like as soon as you can. Like you should schedule this like as soon as possible. And I was like, oh, you know, that it was like such a 180 and sort of how she was talking about it. And so that was hard. That was like really hard. And I think the other main thing is that my mom felt a lot of guilt. Like she felt like it was something that she did to me. And she, you know, so that was like, I was trying to manage my own feelings, but then also manage her feelings. So that was. How did you navigate those feelings, both your own and obviously taking care of your mom and assuring her this is not your fault? So in terms of dealing with my mom, one night we just had a long heart to heart. And I was like, one, this isn't your fault. And two, at least I'm going to have the benefit of not, you know, knock on wood, right? I'm going to have the benefit of not developing cancer. Because now we have this information, I'm like empowered to do something about it. I will say, though, that I cope with it in very unhealthy ways. And so there was definitely like a period of time when I would like go to work and like cry a little bit at work. And I'm laughing about now. I'd like go to work and cry a little bit at work. And then I would like go home and cry a little bit more. It's just a lot. And I have very good health insurance, but all these doctors are specialists. And so over time, it's like $40 here, $40 here, $40 here. Yeah. So these bills were like coming in from NYU. And the other thing was, although my job at the time was so great and understanding, I'd only been at the job I was in for like three months. So then it was like I had to go talk to partners, a lot of male partners too, and say like, hey, there's this thing going on with me. So I'm going to be like a little bit in and out of the office. You know, I hope everything is going to be okay. And when it was... But it was still just like a lot to navigate. So, yeah, I managed the fallout in very unhealthy ways. At the time, I worked on uh, 53rd and 5th. So what I would do during lunchtime is I would go out and I would like buy a lot of clothes. Like I probably had bought like every single thing I ever wanted in the time span of like August 2014 to like January 2015. Because there was a part of me that was like, I have been a good person or I've, I've tried to be a good person all of my life. And I've tried to be a responsible person all my life. And now this shitty thing has happened to me. And so, like, if nothing else, the universe owes me, like, all these things that I've always wanted to buy. And it's funny because I was recently, like, cleaning up my closet. And I have have a pair of limited, there were only 500 pairs made in the world. They are these Wolfer tights that have had, like, Swarovski crystals, like, hand-painted onto them. They're really great to wear at parties. They were also, like, $600. And I'm like, why did I buy these? I just felt like I deserved them. but And it was bad because there was like J. Crew and there was Theory and there was Saks and all these places nearby. And I think in my head, there was also this like weird connection of, well, if I look good, then nothing can be wrong with me, 
right? So if I look super presentable and I'm wearing these super nice clothes, nothing can be wrong with me, which is not the case. Uh, so although a friend of mine later was like, look, it's not like you were on drugs, right? Like you could have developed like a serious drug problem or something. If this is the worst thing that you did, then it's fine. Like you'll make money and you'll pay the debt back. And yeah, and it sounds like your version of unhealthy habits is this. And I'm not saying right or wrong, bad yeah. or good, but this is what you took to and this is what you decided to do in coping. So not only did the doctor tell you that you did, in fact, have this gene mutation, but she told you a bunch of other diagnoses. What were those? Yes. Yeah, so I think, you know, because it's the breast cancer susceptibility gene, I think people, when they hear BRCA, they think just elevated breast cancer risk. But BRCA mutations elevate your risk for a bunch of other different cancers. So it elevates your risk of ovarian cancer, melanomas, pancreatic cancer, uh, and the last one that they currently know about is colon cancer. So in addition to needing to meet with breast surgeons about the mastectomy, I had to start seeing a OBGYN who specializes in gynecological cancers. Uh, and I still see that person every six months for blood work and ultrasounds. I had to start seeing a dermatologist once a year just for like a full body screen for melanomas. I had to start seeing an ophthalmologist. Didn't know most melanomas are on your skin or in your eye. And I haven't had to do it yet. I will need to start seeing someone for colonoscopies when I'm like 38, 39. Uh, and recently, I started seeing someone for the pancreatic cancer risk, a gastroenterologist uh, at NYU. So, and even with the mastectomy part, you have to find a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon to do that. And you have to find surgeons who operate together because it's, right? So that was a whole other aspect to all the other diagnoses that were going on. Yeah. So it's like you walk in going, I hope this is not the case, but it is possible to, oh, my God, I have to go make all these doctor's appointments and I need to have the surgery. Did you at any point consider not having the surgery? Yes, there was a point. So when I started the genetic testing process, that was like June, July 2014, I was still in a relationship. And I think that relationship was going to end anyway. But this was sort of like it accelerated the end of the relationship. So we broke up in September 2014. So I remember at one point around October, and I had scheduled the surgery for December, I was on the phone with a friend, and I was like, I just don't think I can do this. Like, everything with work and the bills and this breakup and everything, like, this is just too much. And I don't know if I'm going to find a partner if I'm like, you know, at the time I felt like disfigured in this way, or I have to deal with this too. And so I was like, I can't do this. The friend was my best friend from college who is actually a doctor. She's not an oncologist. She's a pediatrician. Her husband is a cancer researcher, though, a biostatistician. And she was like, you have to. Because what? Like, if you get cancer and you didn't do this, then you'll always, like, it'll always be in the back of your mind, which was a good point. So there were definitely, like, some low points in terms of, like, my emotional state when I was like, I can't do this. But I think for the most part, my mentality was, okay, I have a BRCA mutation. So I can either have surgery now, at least when I'm like healthy, not undergoing chemo, and I can do it on my own terms. Or I can wait and get cancer. And because I have a BRCA mutation, they're going to tell me to get a mastectomy anyway. So sort of this, the way I thought about it in my mind was like, I can do it on my own terms. 
And I did spend, in a healthy way, I did spend the time from like September to December, the time in between the surgery, trying to get in shape, like and work out and eat healthy. And So in having the surgery, what was that like having conversations with people and letting people know that you don't in fact have cancer, but you're doing this preventatively? Was that like, what was the messaging that you would share with work, with friends, with family? I mean, obviously people knew about your mom, but how was it decided for you to share and what you shared? Yeah, so I always tell people, like, thank God for Angelina Jolie, because a lot of times with, like, I remember going to my partner mentor's office and saying, you know, I don't know if you saw the Angelina Jolie op-ed. If you did, you know, there are these things called BRCA mutations. You know, I recently found out that I have one, and because of that, you know, I'm going to undergo, and I usually would just say preventative surgery. It means I'm going to be out of the office for a while, and he was, like, super great and super understanding. I mean, it was, yeah, it's really interesting to tell people I don't have cancer yet, but it's a high possibility that I will. So I'm going to do this thing. So for the people I was really close to, I took all of them out like one-on-one and told them about it. I mean, there were a couple people like the day I got the results, I texted them and I was like, oh, like I got the results. Like it was positive for the mutation. They're like, you know, they were like very sympathetic. But there were a lot of people I just took them out and told them in person like, hey, you might not know about this thing. This is what a BRCA mutation is. And my doctors have recommended that I have this preventative surgery to take my risk from, you know, the 80s, like down to less than 5%. So for the most part, everyone was very supportive. The law school ex that I mentioned, he was like kind of the most interesting person to tell, I would say, I guess, outside of my family. Because he got very emotional, like he got distraught. And I was like, "It's I'm going to be fine. Like, Everything's going to be okay. Why were you not this emotional when we were dating and together? <laughs> this could have um, worked out. Yeah, right, right, right. No, but he was, you know, and he was like very supportive. But I feel really lucky. I mean, one, I have the benefit of my college roommate's a doctor. She's married to a cancer researcher. So they 100% got it. One of my really good friends, Daniel, is also Jewish. So he was somewhat familiar with this. And then I think for all my friends who weren't familiar, they kind of just like quickly got on board. So they threw a party for, I don't want to jump ahead too much. They threw a party for me like the week after the surgery that was like very well organized. There were like 40 people in my apartment somehow. And what was the plan for this party? So my Adam is my best friend in New York. He's also an attorney. And so Adam was like, what do you want or need like after the surgery? And I was like, to be honest, like, you know, I have to be in the apartment for like three weeks recovering. Like what I really would like is just to like, have something social, just like have people come over. And I think in like a week, I'll feel good enough for people to do that. And he was like, all right. So Adam was like my PR person when I was having (laughs) surgery. So like when I went to the hospital, you know, like he like emailed and I told him who I wanted to know. He was like, Erica's out of surgery. She's going to be discharged tomorrow. These are times when she like is eligible for visitors, like at her apartment. Eligible for visitors. I know. It was, and he he had like a photo he had like taken at the hospital of me, like, you know, but he told everybody, like, this is important to Erica. She wants to have this party. So he coordinated, like, people. It was all potluck. People brought wine. It was great. And then the other best thing that I got was some friends of mine arranged for a maid service to come for, like, twice during those three weeks since I couldn't really clean up the apartment. Um, yeah, I know we're here to talk about me, but I'm always kind of, like, amazed at the way that my friends stepped up because, you know, 
like a really good she's my was my coworker now she's a close friend my friend Courtney you know the advice I got from someone was like don't go to appointments alone because you're gonna get so much information you'll be overwhelmed so you need someone else to go with you to make sure like you're getting all the information so Courtney went to all these appointments with me and I remember when I met my plastic surgeon I just there were, I only cared about like two things I was like can I keep my nipples and she was like yeah and I was like okay great and then she was like, and I think I can do this surgery. Like, you'll wake up with your implants already installed. And I was like, oh, great. And she was like, you have any other questions? I was like, nope. This all sounds really good to me. I would, you know, love to have you do my surgery. <laughs> and Courtney was like, wait, wait, wait. I have questions. So she's like <laughs> grilling this. Dr. Choi is a very good plastic surgeon. And she's like grilling her. And she's like, you know, I just can't let some amateur operate on my friend. And Dr. Choi was like, well, excuse me, but I have done this before. And I was the chief resident of plastic surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital. So like, I know what I'm doing. But there was just a lot of defensiveness and it was great. So I think it's really important to have someone with you. I was just talking to a friend the other day who's been going through some fertility challenges. And she says every time she goes to the doctor with her husband, the doctor talks to her and she just sort of smiles and nods like, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And she walks out of the office and goes, so what did he just say? Because she didn't hear a single word. She's just so in a zone of like, what is happening? Just tell me, what do I need to do? And I will do it. But it's so important to have those people. And so amazing that you have this group of friends that are such advocates of yours and are here to support you in whatever way you need. That's amazing. Yeah, I will say it was, I have a picture of this in my phone somewhere. Adam and his now wife, girlfriend at the time threw a Halloween party and so one of the, like, decorations, they had one of those walls that were, like, chalkboard paint so you could draw on it. One of them was, like, a graveyard that was, like, rip Erica's boobs, 12-1-2014. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. No, it was funny. And I was like, I I don't know. It was their way of being caring, which I appreciate. Yeah, and I think it's important to bring humor into it. You exactly. know, one of the many reasons why I do this show is to sort of keep it light because there's so much sadness and challenges that come with dealing with health stuff. Oh, yeah. And if you don't have some humor, like, it's really going to be depressing at all times. So you mentioned that this college boyfriend or law school boyfriend. Law school boyfriend. Okay. So you mentioned that this law school boyfriend was an Ashkenazi Jew whose mother had passed away from cancer. And that that's a really common thing for white women, especially Ashkenazi Jews, But you also mentioned to me before we recorded that there's a racial disparity in access as it relates to genetic testing. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what your experience was like and or what you know about that? Yeah. So I'll sort of start with like the breast cancer statistics and then I'll get into the hereditary stuff. So the current statistics from the American Cancer Society are that if you're a black woman in the United States you're 40% more likely to die of breast cancer than a similarly situated white woman. You're also uh, more likely to be diagnosed at like a later stage and with more aggressive types of breast cancer. As it relates to BRCA or or hereditary uh, breast cancer, there is a researcher, a really great researcher who I email with a lot at Vanderbilt. Her name is like Tuya Powell. And so she's done a lot of research about this. And so what she's found is that there are these national guidelines of who should be tested for BRCA. But relative to those guidelines, so essentially black women who should be getting referred, they're under-referred, even though they're meeting these testing criteria. 
Um, and her research is not the only research that's found that. Like that's sort of like common across the literature. And so then it creates this problem of like if you talk to researchers, they'll say to you, well, given that black women, you know, have breast cancer at an earlier age and that they have these aggressive breast cancers, we think that there probably are a lot of BRCA mutations in that population, but because people aren't being tested, we don't necessarily have the full set of data that we need to determine this. I mean, in the studies that have been done, the rate of BRCA mutations in study populations in Black women have been somewhere between 10 to 12 percent, which is like higher than what people have thought it is initially. So people think it could be more. I will say with my own experience, you know, I wrote a story for our old magazine about this topic last year. I think they took it out of the draft, but in one of the drafts, I was like, oh, I had the experience of like a wealthy white woman, you know, when I had the stuff, right? Because I had a friend who knew Julia personally. And so like, I mean, Julia is a great doctor. She would have been a good doctor to me in any event. But I just had someone to like sort of help me navigate that process and find the best person. And the fact that, you know, my college roommate and her husband are very well-versed in this stuff. I had people who could give me advice and, like, tell me the things to ask. I had really great health insurance, so I wasn't worried about how to pay for things. I had a job that's very flexible. I wasn't worried about taking time off of work. So I I understand that I come from this stuff from, like, a very privileged point of view, or, like, I'm very cognizant of that. But I will say, I remember I interviewed one surgeon who I did not wind up using, And they were like, I just don't understand how you have this mutation because you don't have any like Jewish ancestry. And I was just like, okay. And you know, that's something like sometimes when I go to events or like conferences I encounter. So like in the Ashkenazi Jewish population, it is one in 40, which is, that's a lot. But I think what happens is people hear that. And so they think it's only something that happens to Jewish people when the reality is like BRCA mutations happen in all ethnicities, like all races. So there's like, I think sometimes a stereotype or a misconception that like has to be tackled. And I think the last sort of thing that connects to this, and I am working on a story about this for NPR that will be out soon, is that there's, to get genetic counseling and testing, someone has to like tell you or refer you or you have to seek it out. And so if your community isn't aware of it, you're not going to do these things. And also like even genetic counselors, the people who do the actual testing, There's not a lot of diversity there either. 90% of genetic counselors in the United States are white. So if you had more diverse genetic counselors, you would have people who would be able to go back and communicate these things to these communities. And obviously we know that patients like to see providers of the same like ethnicity and race and stuff like that. So it's all these like problems that sort of intersect in a way. I love that you speak and write about these issues because it's obviously so important. And we'll be sure to link the NPR article in the show notes when that goes live. So what's the most important message that you want people to know as it relates to genetic testing for the BRCA gene? So two things. I think one is knowing your family history, because I definitely will encounter people sometimes who, um, you know, unfortunately have already had a breast cancer And then I'll start asking them like their family history and they'll be like, well, yeah, my mom had cancer and my grandma had cancer and my, and you see all these cancers. And so it's like, wow, why did no one ever tell, like a doctor never tell you to get tested? So I think the first takeaway is like knowing your family history so that even if a doctor is not referring you to genetic counseling and testing, you might have enough knowledge to make that decision yourself. 
And so if you, I don't know if you can put these in the show notes, there's NCCN guidelines. Those are guidelines as to who should be tested. But the main thing is that like, if you've had a first degree relative who's been diagnosed with cancer before the age of 50, that's definitely a red flag to talk to someone about whether you need genetic counseling and testing. And if you go on the National Society of Genetic Counselors website, you can search, you can put in your zip code and find a genetic counselor near you. We'll be Uh, sure to include that in the show notes for sure. And there's also what they call direct-to-consumer testing kits now. So like Color is one. And so Color um, has a genetic counseling component. Like you meet with a genetic counselor virtually and then you send it off for testing. So that's also an option if there aren't genetic counselors in your area. There are also genetic counselors who now do genetic counseling via telephone, telegenetic counseling. So I say my first takeaway is like know your family history. And then my second takeaway is I also meet people who say, well, I don't want to get tested because if I'm tested and I'm positive, I'm not going to have surgery. And I always tell people, the reason that I had surgery when I was 29 years old is because I have a very aggressive family history of breast cancer and because of the age at which my mom had breast cancer. I had doctors tell me, if your mom had cancer when she was 40, we would not be telling you to have surgery right now. You could go and live your life for a few years. We do surveillance, da, da, da. So there are other options that are non-surgical options. There is increased surveillance which means you get an MRI and a mammogram every six months. There are people who take tamoxifen. So yeah, the main takeaway is I don't want people to feel like just because they have a BRCA mutation, they feel like they have to rush into surgery because they are trying to make the management options for people better. And it is something that has to be discussed with a doctor in the context of like your mutation and your personal family history. That's really helpful. And again, we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. So you mentioned that while you were going through this, that you felt disfigured. What does it feel like to be in your body now, several years later? And how do you feel like given that you had this surgery? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So now I spend a lot of time in some of these like BRCA and breast cancer communities. And I think now I feel really fortunate because I meet a lot of people who, you know, their surgery experience didn't go well. They have issues with their implants, like Whereas, so I did like a boudoir photo shoot before the surgery, so I could just remember what they looked like before. But even like, actually, if I look at those photos compared to what they look like now, there's very minimal difference. I mean, really, the main difference is that there is a scar like running underneath. So I would say in terms of feeling comfortable with my body now, I mean, it'll be five years in December. And, you know, sometimes I forget that they're there. Like, I'm like, oh, right, this is just the breasts I've always had. And then something will happen, like, I'll look in the mirror. Like, if I work out, you can sort of, like, they will move a little bit. And I'm like, oh, yeah, those are implants. But I feel really fortunate because, honestly, like, I remember Dr. Troy being like, I'm going to do a really good job. She said that the first time I met, she's like, I just know I'm going to do a really good job. And I was like, okay. And then she did do a really <laughs> good Thanks for the job. confidence, I know. Doc. And she did do a really good job. I have, like, photos that I'll show people of the reconstructed ones. And they're just like, I hope I get a result that's, like, as good as yours. So I would say overall, I feel really fortunate. And I stayed the same. Like, I didn't go up or down the size. I was like, I'm a 32C now. I want to stay at 32C. So, yeah. I just think with every, you know, a friend of mine just had her preventative mastectomy in April. And I was like, it's probably going to take a year before you start to feel like yourself again, right? Because it's the surgery and then it's also, like, the emotional aspects. So I started seeing a therapist Uh, like two months after the surgery. And in hindsight, I wish I'd started seeing her earlier 
because there's like a lot of emotions to unpack and deal with. And I think one of them, which I know is not about my body image, I hope I'm not like veering off too far, is I told my therapist one time, I was like, I did this somewhat radical thing to save my life, like to live a cancer-free life. So now I feel like my life needs to have a lot of meaning. And that was hard to deal with because I was like, is it just enough that I'm like working at a regular law firm and like I felt this weird pressure to somehow have like a perfect life because I had done this radical thing to like live a long life. And so that was something I really had to work through and unpack. And that took a while. That New York lifestyle definitely got to you, huh? Yeah. So, yeah, I get that. I think it's amazing, though, that you've become an advocate for getting people to be more aware in their bodies and take care of themselves. So where can people learn more about you and check out the writing that you've done as it relates to this topic? Yeah, so I have a website, ericastallings.com. So it's just my name.com. I am also on Twitter and Instagram as Quidditch, like Harry Potter, Quidditch 424. 424 is my birthday. And, you know, I've written for Jezebel, The Cut, Huffington Post, O Magazine, uh, NPR. All those articles are hyperlinked to my main website. And I usually always cross post on Twitter uh, and Instagram as well. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about this. No, thank you. I've been following the podcast for a while, so I'm really honored to be a guest. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.